Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, uh, January 26th. Today we have an interview with Kyler Hassan. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, uh, it's either Hassan or Hassan. Yeah, I think it's Hassan, uh, but it was a good interview. Talked about a lot of good stuff, some of his holdings, how he sort of manages his money, and then what he looks for uh, in businesses. And then we also dove into charter communications in Google, which were yep. two interesting businesses. Uh, but before we get to that, we have our stories for the week. What is your story titled? So this is the one that everyone has been talking about. It's been the big story of the past week. It's the long, short battle for GameStop and Wall Street bets, you know, getting the limelight. Okay, and I have uh, Are We in a Bubble? Someone wrote a good blog piece on it, just kind of interesting stuff. Uh, Brooklyn investor, right? Yeah. yeah it's of, an anonymous person, but it seems like we hadn't really seen him before, but he has a lot of respect within the investment community. Yeah, so I'll dive into that. But before we get to the show, sales pitch time. Uh, yeah. I feel like we're kind of becoming a little too salesy, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, we'll keep it quick. Seven investing. What analyst do we want to talk about? Let's Max? Do Max, yeah. Max, yeah. I mean, if you're into biotech, anything sort of biotechnology, uh, you know, stuff like that, he's your guy. It's early stage stuff. He knows how to navigate those markets correctly without taking on too much risk. He's also a good investor and he's like, good, to supplement yeah. that. And, and yeah, to good investor in general. He doesn't stick just to biotech, but that's his expertise. Um, and if you want all of his analysis, you can get $10 off with our code CCM at that's checkout. Right. Um, I think it's like with, a 66% discount, something yep. like that. So you're welcome. Uh, we do it for you guys. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, it helps us out a bit too, but it also, you yeah. know, you get a great service out of it. And then we also have, as always, current state of FinTwit, hot water, buy, sell, hold, anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off with Are We in a Bubble? Uh, so I Very came, original. Yeah. Uh, I came across a new blog piece this week called The Brooklyn Investor. Well, that's what the whole blog is called. Uh, and he had a pretty long piece about just his overall thoughts on the market. And I, I really didn't know who this guy was, but uh, he got the vote of confidence, a vote of confidence from Ensemble, who retweeted yeah. it. And, and, said, uh, and a few others, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I decided to take a look at it, and he covers a few things in the article, and this is kind of bland, so feel free to – this is just kind of typical bubble talk that everyone's talking about right now. But uh, he talked about Howard Mark's commentary on the market currently, and then he went through a whole bunch of different stuff. But the bulk of his discussion around Howard's comments were about how the difference between growth and value could be because industries are going obsolete. Mm. Um, and yeah. maybe that's like – a you know, maybe that is uh, the that the difference is warranted. Yeah, I, and what, I mean, okay. Well, the big uh, it's interesting. So you look at the value names. I feel like I don't look at what's in the Russell value or the small cap value or whatever it is. Um, what's specifically in those? But from what I hear, other people talking about, you know, the main things that are in there are energy. Uh, financials and manufacturing. Um, I think a lot of times in the United States, the manufacturing sector may be in secular decline or has been for a long time, and that could be a reason. Uh, and there's other businesses that have been disrupted, you know, like legacy media, stuff like that. But with energy, I think it 
part of that may just be because they're out of favor. Because when you look at the energy usage across the country, it's not like that's going away. And there is that slow transition to renewables, but it's not as fast as some people think. I, I think um, I've seen numbers that energy stocks or something like that, X renewables are only like 2% of the market currently, whether, and they're way higher part of the actual economy. So I don't know if that makes sense there. And then on financials, um, there has been a lot of disruption within, you know, traditional banks and stuff. Um, but again, those aren't going away. Um, it might, or they may yeah, be going away slowly. speed is just yeah, as yeah. bad. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think parts of it, I think you might be correct there, but some of it, it just, I, I don't think a lot of these industries are done. They just might be a little bit smaller. And mm-hmm. this is how the value factor kind of works, at least from historical evidence where uh, people discount these industries too much and then there's a valuation re-rating even though the earnings are declining. Okay. And he, I believe Howard Marks also talked about uh, that some of these businesses, uh, you're seeing these massive valuations on them and these premiums when you look historically at them. But he said they deserve them. Uh, that certain, yeah. And I mean if you're looking at a company that has 40, 30, 40% operating margins, I think they do deserve them. And yeah. Are you talking about sales ratios? Stuff like that, or just yeah, the earnings ratio. Yeah, it's like twice as profitable. I mean, yeah. it deserves twice the sales yeah. ratio. That's why the sales ratio in general, that type of stuff can be misleading. Now, can margins grow forever? No, uh, because at some point, you know, labor is going to come back and say, like, no, we want a higher piece of that pie. But uh, if margins are expanding, at least in the overall economy or in many parts, then those sales ratios. Uh, makes sense, but there's stuff about like the Schiller PE and stuff, which is a little bit above our pay, pay grade, right? But I don't yeah. know. It, he, what, what parts were he, was Mark saying was in a bubble and not? Because he said Fang. Howard Marks? It, or, yeah, or, or was this Brooklyn investor? This, was Brook, this is more Brooklyn's commentary on Howard Marks stuff. Okay. But basically, Howard Marks is saying like maybe it's not as bubbly as people think because it feels like everyone is saying, all right, yeah. we've pushed the snowball too far. Uh, and it's gonna. There's gonna be some sort of mean reversion. But then he he also talks about Schiller and the interest rate adjustments and sort of how that warrants the current valuation. Uh, and yes, a lot of this stuff is probably over my head. But he says if we adjust long-term interest rates back to four percent from slightly over one percent right now, markets could be fairly valued at twenty-five times earnings. Uh, yeah. I and is- yeah, like I said, this is over our pay grade. But I just I really don't understand. And I'm pretty sure there's historical evidence that interest rates don't have a long-term impact on earnings yields. So I just don't mm. – if you're yeah. looking at a business on an individual basis, not like factors, some of these companies aren't going to be able to return uh, that much earnings to their shareholders to uh, warrant the valuations, even yeah. regardless of what interest rates are at. Yeah, I mean some of them, yeah, and this is X, you know, a lot of the FANG names, which it's tough to group those together anyways because why isn't Microsoft in there or something like that? But some of the – what companies are you referring to in that probably, regard? Probably my software businesses, I guess. Yeah, so like the SaaS names, yeah. uh, SPAC, EV companies. Well, yeah, those are just different, I guess. That's a whole separate – like that's an, that's an obvious bubble, but I think the big thing is, you know, there's a lot of – renewable companies that are getting a super high multiple. Uh, there's a lot of, yeah, the SaaS names. Those ones are probably the ones that, I mean, even though they're gross margins, whatever, we've had this discussion before, um, they're so high and whatever, and they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, if they're trading at 20x sales, it's a different market environment. You know, we're in a new paradigm with these business models. 
But I think what he means by interest rates is just the market as a whole. So that's kind yeah. of different. Like if you're going at it from an individual perspective, like what I mean by individual, it's individual company. And I think he mentions like don't own pets.com during a bubble, yeah. just own Berkshire Hathaway or whatever in 2000. Uh, that doesn't really matter to you. But if you're someone that's investing in the broad market, it kind of sets your expectations where interest rates are. Because if the interest rates rise, that means that you can search for better yield than in the stock market in bonds, if that makes sense. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then he goes on and talks about Rentech as well. And I think uh, another one he covered is, uh, but I'm not going to get into all of it. And then at the end, he basically asks himself, are we in a bubble? And he says there's a bunch of tiny little anecdotes, tiny little micro bubbles that seem frothy, but on the whole, he does not think we are. Like like SPACs, right? Spe- That's he probably talks about what SPACs, okay. some of the IPOs popping, um, and then stuff like GameStop. Yeah. Uh, AMC or bankrupt yeah. to when it did or whatever. Kodak, uh, yeah. Here's some long quote that he has. He says, speaking of Japan, the Japanese stock market hasn't yet recovered uh, its 1989 high. Uh, in that kind of bubble, yes, I would worry about owning stocks. But remember, PE ratios back then were 60 to 80 times for the whole market. That's too expensive to grow earnings into in a decade or even two. Not to mention the government spending the first two decades preventing any restructuring, etc. That would help the market recover. It was all about protecting, defending the status quo. Things seem to be changing slowly recently, though. So if we see that here, that kind of insane price to earnings, then yes, even I would start pounding the table to dump stocks regardless of interest rates. But I don't see that. In some places, yes, valuations are silly, but who cares? If you owned, say, Berkshire Hathaway in 1999, who cares what the market valued Pets.com at? Just don't buy Pets.com. Do you think these micro bubbles that we're seeing popping up, and this is the day we're, we're recording this, the day okay, that GameStop yeah. stop I mean, that's like one hundred forty percent. Yeah, we'll be talking about that next. Yeah. Uh, do you think they have any bearings on most investors or the market as a uh, whole? That's a tough question. Uh, I really, but I don't. Th- okay, it could hurt the voting, whatever the voting machine versus the weighing machine thing. Where, say, some of these companies, um, a company I'm not allowed to talk about for the next month or other assets and stuff like that, if they totally crash um, because their valuations are unjustified, then it could bring down the market in the short run, right? You know, whatever, you know, every year there's typically a 10% drawdown and every few years there's a 20% drawdown. That could definitely occur. Uh, But I would just think unless there's some terrible thing going on that it's just a better buying opportunity for the names, like he's mentioning here, Berkshire Hathaway or something like that, you know, in that 1999-2000 bubble, which was definitely worse than it is right now. I mean, it could get as bad. Uh, it could, could become, you know, part of a broader market bubble uh, like it was back then. But if you just own the companies that you believe were trading at a reasonable valuation, had great returns on invested capital, were generating cash, returning capital to shareholders, I don't think you have to worry about that. You just can't get the FOMO to go after something like GameStop. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I, I agree with all that. And then, I mean, sometimes it does lead to overvaluations and some other names as well. Uh, yeah. But there were there was also another ensemble piece by Todd Wenning, uh, who talked about even like the really really high quality companies. If you thought you overpaid, you didn't overpay. Like Costco, Walmart. Yeah. You could have bought Costco at forty times earnings apparently, uh, any period, and still had like a ten percent CAGR. Yeah. Any period, like whatever over five years ago or something like that. Yeah, I mean, if you find the quality companies, now the hardest thing to judge is for something like Costco, you always worry about, all right, well, how much more can they reinvest? 
And that's yeah. the hardest question you have to ask yourself. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it can pay to overpay, if that makes sense, sometimes. But I think uh, when whole, you look... maybe not. Yeah, there's a lot of... I feel like company. there's a lot more times where you overpay yeah. and you're wrong than well, yeah. overpaying right. What's that you're referring to? It's like, uh, gosh, we're... we're quality margin of safety? No, no. It's like when something like, you know, we see the Costco's and the Amazon's and the Netflix's that have been good performers, but oh. it's kind of like we see those just because they lasted, but there's a lot of companies that died in their wake. I love to see the numbers on that. Maybe it's not something you can actually look at statistically, but... Um, okay, yeah. your story. More all right, fun. this one's uh, this one's fun. We all have been following it. I think everyone's been following. It. If you're on Twitter, I mean, that's all anyone's on FinTwit's tweeting about. But it's the battle between GameStop. Uh, it is between uh, the short sellers and Wall Street bets. Uh, so it's been the most followed stock this week, and it became a battleground stock after Citron Research, the really big short seller. First off, they were trying to do this at first during the inauguration, which. It was ridiculously dumb. Uh, but they were publicly announced that they were shorting the company GameStop. It had a high amount of short interest. I think it's at over 100% still. Uh, and so on January 19th, about a week ago, they tweeted it was time to short GameStop. Um, five days later, the stock is over 200%, so it did not work well for them uh, and for the other short sellers. And why did this happen? Because the degenerates, as they call themselves, over at Wall Street Bets decided to gang up and flood the GameStop options and common stock market. So there's buying up shares like crazy, buying a bunch of options, and they were driving up for the demand for shares in this heavily shorted stock, which caused a crazy short squeeze. Uh, and if you don't know what Wall Street Bets is, I think we had an interview with the founder of him, yeah. or of that company. Jamie not company, Rogozinski. Jamie Rogozinski, yeah. He, a very interesting guy. And yeah. yeah, we talked with him back in the spring, so you can understand what they're trying to do over there. And it's really a community of people taking... Crazy bets. Uh, that's why they call it Wall Street bets. And they, they bet on things that could hopefully, <laughs> potentially have some sort of GameStop-like returns. Here's uh, the thing I like about Wall Street bets is they are degenerate gamblers and they advertise themselves yeah. as such. They're not fooling themselves. They're very. They're a very honest crowd. Yeah, I would never invest like that and no one should invest like that. But if this is your type of gambling mentality, and I know there's people on there like... Uh, it is hilarious to watch. I mean, there's a, there's, you know... Poor Citron, but uh, and there yeah. is a lot of there is a lot of tail risk or negatives to what goes uh, on. Oh, it yeah, is funny yeah. to watch from the side. Yeah, lines. I don't like when people are putting their entire portfolio into things like this. But I'm rooting for them to make money. I don't want them to go broke and I have a bunch of loans to pay off. But yeah, the stock now is up. To, uh, well, the trading today has been erratic, as everyone knows. So we're recording on the day, it went up to 150, back down to 70, and up to wherever it is now. But it's up about 2,500 percent in the last year. Uh, maybe 2000 now or even lower. But it has made value investors quite a bit of money, including uh, Michael Berry. Uh, although he did sell, I, I was looking at his 13F. Um, he sold about 40% of his stake back in uh, September, his last 13F. Uh, so we'll see how much he still owns. I'd assume that a lot of the value investors were who were you know, actually investing in this to um, have it as a long-term deep value play, kind of like we talked about it with Nick Seipel actually recently. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are probably taking their chips off the table uh, because yeah. this has just been ridiculous, even if they can do a turnaround story. Um, yeah, what did, you, what did you think about that? I mean, originally the thesis was, okay, it trades. At one point, they traded below their net cash, literally. Yeah. So uh, it, was, it was a real deep value play. Yeah, and they 
the thesis was that they were going to cover their dividend, which at the time was like 18 or 19% yield. Yeah. Um, and now the thesis is it only goes up. So I'm sure a lot of those value investors that got in for the right reasons are out now. I, assume. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's always worrying if a company like that becomes so erratic, or a stock becomes like you know so erratic and so volatile. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm guessing they used this the high demand and buying shares to end up selling it. But the the short interest, I'd be wondering to see what it ends up at in the next few weeks because it still looks like it's at 100. Um, percent Maybe that will get up. Get updated sometime soon. Uh, let's see. I have a couple questions that we could discuss. Do you think this is the last hurrah for Wall Street bets? No. Uh, I think they're toast, though. It's like some point, like you know what I mean. They've kind of. Yeah, I mean the it, it is the last hurrah potentially before they're regulated. Um, yeah. Or there's some sort of action against them, but it's not. Like if they were unregulated and they kept going, no, this is not the last win or victory they're going to have. Yeah. The thing that I find so funny about this is they're like, let's get them. Let's attack yeah, the short it's, sellers. It's, let's do it. It's a coordinated attack. And then at some point, all of them backstab and drop out. Uh, I mean, yeah, it is a confidence game. And then, I mean, on aggregate, no one's making any money because you're losing a lot of it to trading costs or whatever, you know, order flow and things like that. So some people are getting really rich and some people are getting screwed and eventually someone has to hold hold the bag. Uh, but do you think now we don't have the legal um, expertise, but just kind of in general, do you think this is a collusion pump and dump schemes? In like other words, do you think it should be deemed illegal? Uh, I mean, yeah. If these if these people were in an office together, yeah, it would have already been raided. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like everyone would say this is terrible, but because they're you know on the internet, just because they're not together doesn't mean they're not coordinating the same attack. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, I saw... It's not even groupthink anymore. No, it is collusion. It's not like they're... I mean, okay, the first people that got into GameStop, yeah, there's a lot of people that in the in the spring and the winter and last year were saying, like, like this is a deep value play. We think this has a you know high risk but high reward for potential just betting on the company. But now there's a weaponizing um, options contracts to try to screw over a heavily shorted stock. And if you do that on your own... Maybe that's fine. But if you're colluding with thousands and thousands of other people, I mean, it's not great. I have a tweet from Jesse Livermore, who um, is an anonymous account who goes by the pseudonym Jesse Livermore, if you're not on Twitter. But he says, SEC needs to drop a bomb on this, which would be exciting. Uh, I hope no one gets hurt. But imagine if the scenario were inverted and short sellers were using an online forum to advertise and attract participants in an option-driven attack that sunk a stock by 90%. People, like, yeah. if you flip it, you It's know. always nice to be on the long side of this. That's great. But, yeah, if you flip it and there's people at, like, a firm that are taking stock options, like honest yeah. working employees, yeah. and you just, like, bombed their retirement, that's a little... But the thing is, like, why, why? what makes it worse? Just because a stock goes up versus it goes down, I think they should be treated fairly. There is, seems to be a bias, and, yeah, we're long-only people. Uh, so we don't necessarily care, and it doesn't affect you if you're long because you don't have to pay interest on your your short loans or whatever. Uh, but isn't it the it should be treated the same, right? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it it feels wrong. The but th- this was going to be my current state of fintwit, so I have some follow up questions for you. First of all, who uh, who do you think they'll attack next? 
Oh, I mean, there's a Blackberry. Blackberry, yeah. Blackberry's being attacked. A- AMC. I'm hoping Altria. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were joking with the companies yeah. in terminal decline. We've yeah. Got we're, uh, uh, we're ta- or, sorry, people were talking to Lawrence Hamptel, our uh, friend who was on the show, uh, that, yeah, he should go in and pretend that, he, you know, as an anonymous <laughs> account and just drop the seed. terrible stock. Yeah, drop the seed. This dividend yield's high. But it's not. It's probably not short enough, and it's too big. Uh, the only last question I had, well, what would you think if you owned a company and Wall Street Bets started, you know, doing their thing with it? Which way? Uh, it doesn't matter. Because if you're long, you know. If you have the way we, you know, the way we invest, like with the whatever the five-year time horizon, time open hold some for her, her, her forever. Um, I don't know. Time horizon, time horizon eliminates all of that. Yeah. Think. I mean, think about it. Like, uh, if yeah, you're if you're could, long, if it you're could long, hit, um, yeah, if it could hit, it could go up one hundred fifty percent. It could drop seventy percent from there, but in the next six. Seven, five, six, seven years, it's going to follow its earnings. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. The thing that, the only hard part is that when you say you own something and you have the benefit of it going up 100% right away, that can be a good thing, but it makes you make the hard decision of, you know, should I sell? Yeah. Um, and I guess sometimes that's why the, so, you know, not forcing yourself to sell can be a good thing. Okay. Um, what would you do if you were management at Wells or uh, GameStop? Mm, maybe try to raise some money. I don't know. Just add the money. Uh, equity offerings? Yeah, do the... I don't know. I mean, whatever you can do to raise money with this elevated stock, right? You know what would be interesting? That Chewy.com guy uh, that was on the board, what if he? What if we find out that he, he was... It? He was... Yeah, because we don't know who any of these Wall Street Bets people are. And Reddit does. They have emails or whatever, you know? Yeah. It'll be interesting to see when they get... The SEC gets a subpoena. Who was actually... Who are these accounts? Because that's going to become public information eventually. Yeah, it'd be. I, I don't mean, know. I can't. The story's the exciting. Stop investor relations Twitter page was the funniest thing. Oh, you mean the the parody one? Yeah, yeah, that was good. That was good. But all right, um, what do you have for current state of Fintwit? Because that was basically uh, my stuff. Okay, uh, there was a big discussion this week about Clubhouse. Uh, so they are like a new audio type social media thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure exactly what it is, and it's not on Android, so losers like me are not allowed on it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you got to get an invite or some, something like that. It's, they're kind of trying to make it, you know, the slow build and then go fast to everyone. Uh, but it recently got some new money at a billion dollar valuation with only two million users. Your thoughts? It's a loaded question, but they don't monetize yet, do they? Yeah, that's. I've heard, I heard someone be like, "How would you monetize uh, Clubhouse?" It'd be tougher. I, I kind of feel left out that I haven't gotten an invite, but it sounds like it's kind of like a VC community. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's the discussions we like with the, the VC communities, the crypto, you know. Yeah, maybe we're better off. I don't know. I, but I do worry. That, that was kind of something I was talking about. Yeah, the, how would they make money? I'm not even... Yeah, I have no idea, but uh, with VCs being the ones that are on it, they're probably like... Yeah, the people that are backing it are the ones that are also yeah, like, on the mm-hmm. forum. So they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, definitely harvest like, our data and run ads. Yeah, oh, they're, uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, No, they're probably thinking like, hmm, well, two million users, but one of them's me. And everyone loves hearing me talk. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, probably the, that's probably the thought process. Anything else? 
Nope, that's it. Okay, uh, we're going to hit a quick break, and then after that we have our interview with Kyler. Any highlights for you? Mm, I like how, yeah, I mean, he's a clear thinker on his investment process. Yeah. He's very, um, well, I don't want to describe what his strategy is because it seems very flexible, uh, but I just think he's someone who doesn't mess around with anything too risky. He, you know, he's trying yeah. to be very safe and he's trying to hold companies that he believes he can hold for a decade plus. Um, and it's always interesting to hear someone talk about that. Yeah, and he was also, we had a long discussion with him afterwards, and he is very uh, sort of managing money first, not like capital return. Like he's not focused as much on beating the benchmark as he is on caring for his investors or his yeah. clients, which is kind of an interesting twist because we hear so much about funds these days. Trying to just go all out for that. Uh, yeah, just the, trying to beat the benchmark. Yeah, gross of fees or whatever. Yeah, he does worry. Yeah, it's interesting to hear him talk about the net of fees stuff for okay. sure. Okay, all right. Here's a quick break, and then you got the interview. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Kyler Hassan. Am I saying that right? You are. Okay. Uh, and Kyler is a portfolio manager at Delta Investment Management. Uh, I thought a good place to start would just be your background, kind of how you got to where you are today, what interested you, what interested you in finance, uh, what are sort of the thumbnails of your career? Yeah. So um, I got interested in stocks and investing in high school uh, through one of those you know, you're in class and you pick some stocks games and you check them every week and, you know, you kind of see who wins. And, um, you know, that, that would have been in, uh, late 2007, um, or maybe early 2008. Uh, and so markets were starting to be kind of a little, little volatile and it was just interesting to watch the stocks move and see where they went. Um, and I think a, a natural kind of follow up for me was, you know, well, well why? Um, and then I started, you know, I started reading most of the same things that most people read, you know, the Buffett letters and sort of most of the foundational books. Um, through college, I kind of continued uh, to spend a lot of time looking at stocks and markets and investments, um, somewhat to the detriment of my studies, <laughs> you might say. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I think maybe my junior college, I said, well, you know, would it be cool if I could do this, you know, full time? So I uh, took my, I think, accreditation test, uh, Series 65, when I was in college. And then um, uh, my, my fifth year I was there, I sort of opened up uh, a very small money management business. Uh, with the idea being, you know, maybe I'll start it and then work part time uh, to bridge the gap until I get enough clients. Um, and then I was super, super fortunate. Uh, I had six or eight months in college left. And uh, by the time I was out, I, you know, had enough people trust me with, with some money that I could just do that full time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, I, and then that would have been 20, uh, late 2012, maybe. Uh, and so I've been managing money professionally ever since. 
uh, five, maybe five or so years independent and then uh, two or three years at Delta. Uh, some guys that, you know, my back office and uh, do some other supporting roles and kind of support me in many different ways. All right. How, how does Delta, how is that set up? What's the, uh, the strategy there overall? I guess we're going to get into your process individually, but you know, I know people don't want to put themselves in like the value or growth camp, but how to, you know, does Delta investment kind of sit in the investment world? Yeah. So they actually, um, so the guys that handle my back office do the same for a few different RIAs. Maybe there's, I mean, I don't even know the, the count. There might be six or seven groups. So, um, I'm, I'm a part of that, uh, but I manage my own money with okay, you know, okay. and my own clients kind of with full discretion. Uh, so I would say um, it probably depends who you ask. Uh, I would probably call myself a, a quality investor. Uh, that's, that's kind of in vogue these days. Um, but, you know, for different people, that means different things. I think for me, I own a few of those kind of growthy compoundary names that some people like to make fun of because they're expensive than they are. Uh, and then I, I own a few companies that you'd call value stocks. And, you know, most people think they're terrible companies, which from time to time they are. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I have no overarching goal to be one way or the other, but I tend to, I tend to look for value wherever I can find it. And, and I own some things across that spectrum. Has that kind of always been the strategy or did you like start out cigar butt deep value and then move to quality or has it kind of been the same throughout? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you ask. Uh, I was looking through some old holdings and one of my, maybe this was, I want to say it was like 2016. So not that long ago. Um, and I was looking, I had a new client come in and, and I was looking at their, their portfolio at the time. And it was, I'm, I'm going to forget the percentages, but for them, I, I owned uh, Berkshire, Exxon, uh, Norfolk Southern, and one other just kind of mediocre thing. I forget what the, the last one was. Um, but, you know, for those of you listening at home, if you rolled that forward from 2016 to today, you wouldn't have done very well. Yeah. Um, so I think when I started... Uh, I've always been pretty focused on on cash flow, so I don't. I've never owned any like you know deep value stuff, but I own you know those sorts of maybe industrial companies that you know had had earnings and you know decent returns on capital, or at least I thought they could be decent. Um, but for you know what you what you'd call you know sort of low PEs was primarily I was attracted to them. Um, a few years ago, I went through a project and I, and I just sort of looked at the value creation of uh, every decent sized company in the States and then the big ones uh, internationally. And, and I just, you know, I said from something like 2006 or seven through, uh, I think maybe it was 2016 when I did it, um, you know, what's been the value creation on a per share basis. Uh, and then, you know, I just took a look at everyone that created a lot of value. And so obviously you're going to find stuff like Apple where, you know, they grew organically at some humongous rate, but you also find stuff that um, maybe via capital allocation uh, and a pretty good business, you know, they could, they could actually have really good results. So once I did that, uh, I found a fair amount of quite high quality companies. And I'd say naturally, as I've been aware of them over time, 
um, when they've gotten cheap for one reason or another, I've, I've tend to own more of those types of things. Okay. All right. We are going to, uh, talk about your process and we're also going to talk about Google and charter later on, but first we're going to get to process. Um, so I guess as far as sourcing ideas goes, do you have any particular way you do that or do they just show up on your Twitter timeline or Twitter feed, something like that? Uh, and then how long does it take you to sort of build that conviction? So, you know, if you find a good idea, does it, are you, do you move pretty fast on it or does it take sometimes months to build a conviction? Yeah. Yeah. Good questions. Um, so I would say, well, that project I did, I mean, I mean, that sourced a lot of good companies. I think my process is generally, you know, I, I probably follow, I don't know what the number is, 50 or 100 companies that I think are great and I really like. And, you know, I try to buy them when the Ford IRRs look attractive. Um, so when I did that project, I went from, you know, just being aware of kind of most of the the big fairly well-run companies to, Hey, here's some companies that, uh, you know, are, and, and when I say creating value, I mean, uh, the ones that are exceptional, maybe they increased value on a per share basis by 15% or more per year over an economic cycle. There's not that many of those. Um, maybe, uh, if you're not looking at the, the really hyper growth stuff, there might be, you know, 20. Uh, so, you know, keep an eye on those. Um, and then once I started getting active on Twitter, uh, I found, you know, I, so I think the first, my first interaction was via constellation software, which, which fits that mold. And so, you know, you find some shareholders of, of a really high quality company like that. And, you know, it's generally interesting what else they own. Uh, so I got involved in some of these circles and found some like-minded investors. And now I probably have uh, say 10 or 15 investors that tend to own similar things to me. Uh, and you know, our process is mostly just, we talk from time to time, you know, every once in a while, one of us, uh, is like, you know, I have this position and it looks too cheap. What's the problem. And then, you know, you kind of go diligence it in. And, um, I would say a lot of my ideas have come just like that. Uh, so, you know, I try to share, things that I'm looking at that look really interesting and, and friends share things back. Um, and then, so, you know, once I have the idea, I usually, you know, read through the calls and, and, um, kind of the, the cues and the K's. Um, and it really depends on the business, uh, for how long until I'm comfortable with it. Um, some things, you know, you just kind of know what the business is and, and you can get a handle on it really quick. It might just be, oh, you, you know, you, you read through like some of the SEC filings, you read through the conference calls, you try to get sense for management and you could be comfortable with it in, you know, a few days. Uh, other things, you know, especially if it's a newer industry, it might take, yeah, it might take a couple months um, to get comfortable. Uh, so it just depends. Um, you know, I, I tend to own sort of bigger companies. Uh, I don't own, I don't tend to own really small stuff. That's, that's really niche, which will tend to take longer to understand. So it can be pretty quick. Okay. And I know in your letters you wrote, or maybe it was a, one of the letters I was reading that you talk a lot about management. Uh, how do you assess management? 
Um, are there any particular qualities that you look for? Because I know a lot of it is, is qualitative. Right. Um, and people are like, well, I think management good. management's good. I think management's bad. It's kind of hard to be like, well, why? Uh, so, yeah. what, so what do you look for? Yeah, uh, I think that's really industry specific. Um, I would say there's two sides, operational and financial. Uh, the financial side's pretty easy if you know what to look for. Um, I look on financially, the first thing I look for is does a capital structure make sense? Um, so, you know, do you have a cyclical business that everybody knows is cyclical that's, that there's a lot of debt on it? Um, I mentioned that I used to own Exxon. I remember back in that time, it was, you know, maybe whenever oil really started to, to, uh, roll over, I think that was 2016. Um, you know, you had a lot of the smaller, uh, exploration production companies and like, they all had a lot of debt, uh, which just should preclude you from owning any of it. Um, given how cyclical that business is and, you know, sure enough, a lot of those companies were zeros. Um, so, you know, do they run the company, you know, roughly correct financially, nothing's going to be perfect, but I like to see the capital structure close to how I'd run it if I was in their shoes, uh, you know, depending on cyclicality, strength of cash flow, and those, those kinds of things. Uh, secondly, when they deploy capital, you know, what's their IRR on it? Um, I'm totally okay with any companies that just say, hey, we've got a lot of extra cash flow, we're just going to pay it out. Um, you know, there's, there's many companies that do a lot of M&A. Uh, there's only a few of them that I think are really exceptional at it. There are a lot that uh, get sort of market returns, uh, even if investors might think that they're creating a lot of value. Um, so, but, you know, just, just looking at, you know, how much they spend, um, you know, what did the acquisition make and what's sort of the expected growth path. Um, you know, I think if you just, look for companies that are doing those things well, you can avoid a lot of problems. Uh, there's a lot of companies that just do big, dumb M&A and it comes at a huge multiple and, and at low IRRs and really hurts shareholders. So um, just common sense stuff on the financial side. Uh, operationally, uh, that one sort of depends on the industry. Uh, you know, you can look at some quantitative factors you know, you might look at where the margins are compared to peers. Um, I think the bigger one is if you've got a good peer group, you know, what's the organic growth compared to those peers over time? Uh, because, you know, you can take your margins up pretty much as high as you want and, and hurt the business uh, pretty easily. So, um, you know, I, I just like to get a sense of how they operate uh, and, you know, the numbers can show some of that. Um, you know, you can just get a sense for how they think, hopefully, on the calls. Um, so, like, uh, you know, Berkshire is an obvious example that everybody sort of knows. Um, you know, they, if you think about how Buffett manages that company, it, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you know, it's decentralized. Uh, you know, he kind of lets people do what they want. Um, the managers, as long as... Um, the results are okay and, and they run it really financially conservative. Um, and I think those are generally good ideas uh, and have, have worked out pretty well. Um, you know, you, you can sort of know like Burlington Northern Santa Fe, um, they've sacrificed some margin in order to capture 
uh, a little bit of revenue. Um, maybe that works out, maybe it doesn't, but you kind of know that, well, at least he lets the people running that run it how they want with a long time frame. And, uh, you know, I think that's important. So, um, you know, just depends on the industry. You, you just try to get to know the people that run it, why they run it like they do, you know, how are they paid? Um, and do they generally seem to be doing the right things? So, okay. Uh, so it's, it's almost like you gotta, like, you know, a lot of times management can show good things, but uh, what can hurt you is like, if you see any red flags, it's almost like, all right, things are going good. Things are going good. Oh, wait, no, those decisions seem uh, a little bit suspect. Is that how you kind of go about it or? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think, uh, I was actually just listening to, um, uh, Sean, who I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think Sanders Stockton from, from ensemble talk. Um, and, and he mentioned, you know, they look for, uh, idiosyncratic companies. And I think that's, that's a really interesting idea and something I do, uh, maybe not quite as well as them, but, um, you know, I, I, one of the big mistakes coming to this year was I owned Wells Fargo and I could have told you, well, it's not managed well. It's not just a CEO, but it goes all the way down the organization. And, um, you know, even if it was a sort of a normal bank, you know, you, you could still have a lot of worries in a lot of places, but Wells Fargo was, you know, worse for all the reasons that we all know. Um, and, you know, the idea was, well, they can just kind of go back to being a normal bank. Uh, turns out their organization was a lot worse than it seemed, uh, or well, than it seemed to me. I think anybody that was a little more intelligent could have figured it out themselves. Um, but, you know, there's red flags there. Uh, but then the second part, back to the idiosyncratic thing, is, is now I, I own First Republic, which, uh, you know, if you sort of know people that bank there or follow that bank, um, it's managed not just from the top, but sort of uh, throughout the whole organization very, very well. Uh, and it's obvious to everybody. Um, you know, the customer service is great. Um, they really go after good profitable growth. Uh, and it's just an exceptionally, exceptionally run place. And so I think if you try to focus on those companies that are just so obviously so much better than their peers, um, you know, assuming you don't have to pay too much for it, then, you know, that's good in and of, in, in and of itself, but you can also evade, ev well, avoid some of the bad outcomes. Um, so that's, that's what I like. I like to find management. That's just sort of obviously the best, uh, easier said than done. Was, uh, was that the business brew episode you were listening to? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, uh Bill Brewster is a, a good, good friend of mine. And, uh, so I've been, was really excited as he was talking to me about starting it. Um, and then the first, maybe it's five episodes now have been really exceptional. Uh, so yeah, yeah no, they've, uh, They've been good. I really like that Sean one. Are you willing to pay up for quality management or are you still kind of, I know, I think Bill and uh, McMurtry talked about this. It's like uncomfortable to do it, to be willing to pay up for really high quality. Have you gotten like around that or are you still kind of valuation disciplined? Well, I hope to be valuation disciplined. Um, I think there's a, I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that. The first thing is, is that, you know, when I value something, I, I do my best to just think of, you know, what's, what's my best guess for the future? 
what are some confidence bands around that? And what's my rate of return going to be, you know, with my base case, the sort of not so good case and the best case. Um, and so that applies to, to something like Fresh Republic that's managed great or Wells Fargo or, you know, anything else. Um, so, you know, management affects those, those numbers and those expectations. So I would like to say that, um, you know, I, I perfectly have no biases when I'm looking at something and, you know, a 12% IRR is a 12% IRR and, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if, if you're, you know, trailing 12 month PE is 15 or 25. Um, I can say that I realized uh, back this March, actually, uh, that, I, that I had to bias against paying more than about 20 times free cash flow. Uh, and it was, I think we're going to talk about Google in a few minutes, but um that's a, about the level I bought Google at. Uh, it was it was in March. Stock was pretty uh, was down a lot. Um, and I was thinking about it, and I said, "Well, listen, I'm buying Google here, and it's down uh, whatever it was not not a terribly high amount. And there's other stuff that's down way more. Um, and if I'm buying, you know, Google here when it's outperformed a lot of the other things I look at, well." Maybe I, you know, maybe I should have bought it a long time ago, uh, and I didn't because oh well, it's at you know twenty four times free cash, twenty four times earnings, and that's more than twenty. And I just had, I just realized I had a some sort of mental block in there that said, well, I want at least a five percent free cash yield. So I think that's one example of a you know heuristic or a cognitive bias that that I've tried to address. And so, you know, going forward, I, I would just say I, I try to look at things as they are and doesn't matter too, too much about, you know, what the next 12 months looks like. Uh, you know, I want to forecast a little longer and if I can get a good return, then I'll buy it. Um, um, you also mentioned in your annual letter that you're more active in bad times than in good. Is that sort of relate? You mentioned there that in March you switched into Google or you started a position. Are you in bad times, are you trying to transition into higher quality names? Why are you uh, more active then? Uh, yeah, biggest reasons is uh, taxes. <laughs> so okay. uh, I run several managed accounts. Uh, you know, I'm based in California. So um, you don't have to make that much money in California to have a pretty high marginal tax rate. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I have the majority of my money is uh, uh, higher marginal tax rate money. So when stocks are going up, uh, you know, if we're going to get rid of them, we're going to have to generally pay a big chunk of tax to do so. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, I run most of my money. Um, you know, if I run all of somebody's money, I, I usually run something like 70 to 80% invested in stocks and the remainder in, you know, I would say bonds, but these days it's just sort of short-term treasury bills. Right. Um, and so, you know, general strategy is, is if things, you know, if stocks are heading down, you know, I've, I've got plenty of liquidity um, and I want to be a buyer. Uh, so, you know, if things look, if the markets are lower and the, the Ford IRs are looking really attractive, you know, I have plenty of liquidity to put to work. Um, so I'd say those two things. And the third thing, the, um, you know, I did also after the last few downturns, uh, I remember in late 20, was it 18, yeah, uh, yeah. markets were kind of weak, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, in that downturn, I was buying um, quality as well. Uh, I think at that point, Constellation Software was okay. sort of became a bigger position. Um, and so, I, you know, I sort of realized, you know, listen, if I'm not buying sort of the levered cyclical bombed out names at the bottom or on the way down to the bottom, um, then I, you know, I shouldn't own that stuff at all. Uh, you know, I think I'm not, you know, given, given the tax situation, my clients, I'm not, I'm not trying to trade around. Um, you know, if I turn the portfolio over once a year, you know, I'd have to make something like 20% to make 12% after tax. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, that's people don't make 20% returns forever or very, very few do. Uh, I think that's almost impossible. So I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to own quality for the long run. Um, and so, you know, if you said, Hey, here's some steel company and you know, it's March and trades it two times, like a fake earnings number. Um, you know, that's not that interesting to me. Okay. Maybe I double my money. I have to pay my, I have to pay tax. Um, but you know, for every time that works, you have one or two or three times it don't work. And, uh, so I just, on an expected value basis after I, I would hypothetically sell that stuff and pay taxes, it's just not that interesting to me. Uh, so I need to own stuff that I can hold for a long time, which, you know, is what we'd all sort of call quality. Uh, so, uh, I have transitioned to owning, um, those kinds of situations and not the Norfolk Southerns and Exxons of the world. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, what does drive a sell decision? Uh, I know it's important with the, you know, the situation you're in that taxes are probably important, but is it, is it always, you know, qualitative evaluation? Do you have a systematic strategy for selling something? Um, how do you go about that? Yeah, that's a hard one. It is the hardest question, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's the hardest. So first off, um, the easy one is you're wrong about the business. Um, you know, I, I'll sell it. Um, so that's, and that, you know, that can be, that can also be difficult. I mean, you know, the principle, the principle is easy, but it's really hard to know, Hey, you know, this is still a good business and it's just having sort of a weak period or man, this, this is really broken. I need to dump it. So that's not obvious, but, but hypothetically, um, your thesis is broken. You're wrong about the business. You know, you, you gotta get rid of it. Um, two, you know, if you see something that looks relatively better, you know, I can be a seller there. Uh, easier if if whatever I'm selling hasn't run up a lot, so I don't have a big tax bill. Um, third, on valuation, it depends on the business. Uh, I tr- I like to own stuff that has some optionality in it. Uh, it uh, might not be the same optionality as many other people are talking about these days. Um, how should I say this? Uh, you know, it's not, it's not like, Oh, you know, they, they could come out with some new product line or humongous business. That's going to be worth a hundred billion dollars in 10 years. I not really like that. Um, although maybe in one specific case, uh, usually it's, you know, I own this company Transdime and, uh, a couple of years ago, they, they bought this business called Esterline. And at the time I thought Transdime was worth, uh, say it was maybe $350 a share. And they announced this, this transaction. Um, 
and it was bigger than they normally do. And, you know, back of the back of the napkin math, I said, well, I think that's going to add a hundred dollars of intrinsic value to the stock um, off of a base of $350. So, you know, if I, if, if I could have gotten $400 after tax, which I couldn't have, but assume I could have, you know, the day before I said, Hey, this is great. You know, I, I can sell this for more than the current assets are worth. Well, tomorrow, bummer. Uh, now it's worth 450. Um, so there's not, there's not a lot of companies like that. Um, but I own hopefully a couple. Uh, so I don't like to sell those, even if they look expensive. Uh, maybe I'll trim a little bit uh, if I can. Sometimes I can't. Um, you know, First Republic's another good example. You know, if you if you plug in sort of current net interest margins to that bank, you say, well, stock looks kind of expensive, and it probably is. Um, if we get an environment where, you know, the net interest margin is up significantly, maybe on higher interest rates, uh, it could be pretty cheap. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to have that option on, on higher rates. Um, so, you know, I, I just, the better the business is and sort of the more optionality it has, the less likely to sell. If it's, you know, if it's, you know, Berkshire, I have a good sense of what that's worth. Uh, if I could get 10 or 20% more than that after tax, I'd, you know, I'd sell it. Uh, we're not close to that though. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I think we should move to a few specific companies. The first one's Google. Um, and you mentioned that you started this position in March, right? I'm getting that right. Yeah. yeah um, okay. So I guess just what's the thesis? Cause I, most people know what Google is, but why do you like it as an investment? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think one really important thing for investors is, um, you need to ask the right questions given where a stock is, is selling, uh, where the valuation is. And in March, um, if you backed out the losses from other bets, which, you know, maybe you shouldn't, uh, if you, you know, didn't give them credit for the cash on the balance sheet, which I feel a little strongly that you shouldn't, uh, and then if you backed out the probable losses from their cloud business, um, it was, it was trading at sort of a little less than 20 times trailing 12 months earnings. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a one foot hurdle kind of guy. Uh, that, that wasn't that tough of a call. Uh, you might argue that, well, you could have made some, some better money somewhere else, but you know, for a business that's growing, call it, you know, high teens or 20% organically um, to buy that at 20 times earnings. Uh, I mean, that, that wasn't a super complex decision. Uh, I think at some point it will, you know, slow down um, and it'll grow, you know, at sort of more normal rates. And at that point, it'll probably be worth about 20 times earnings. So um, I think in the interim, you kind of get all that growth. Uh, you know, I think just as long as, their search function continues to be more useful for users and advertisers. Uh, they'll continue to grow at good rates, which, you know, looks to continue to be happening. Um, so it was, it was really not a complex thesis. Um, on top of that, you have some, some, that's the one uh, where I said that you might have a big business, the cloud business. Um, I'm told by all my growth friends that you can just take revenue and multiply by 10 and that's what it's yeah. worth. 
Or uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, right. Or whatever, or whatever you want. So uh, yeah, I mean, that could be worth a lot. I, I'm not the biggest expert on the cloud, but I think I kind of appreciate that you need to be a big player and spend a lot of money uh, to have a chance to compete there. And so there's, you know, three, three or maybe there could be four companies um, that compete and it should be a big growth business. And I, think they should do well in it if um you know the one the one knock on google is well they've never really done anything well outside their core business so it remains to be seen whether they'll be successful there's there's been some good early indications um but you know that that's a good option um on top of uh you know maybe they put the cash to use at some point uh so you know it was just it was i think obviously too cheap uh in march um that was the thesis. Uh, it's trading in its terminal value and it's growing pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all, that's all you need. Are they, uh, well, how do you think of the other bets line? Um, I know they've lost, I think it's either 15 billion or $20 billion cumulatively, cumulatively from that and haven't really got any you know, profits out of it. How do you weigh that versus them actually starting to return capital to shareholders? Do you think they should maybe try to do both at the same time? Cause they have so much cash or, um, or is that not something you really think that you can be like, Maybe you can't control that. So maybe like, I don't know, do you think that they should cancel that at all or try to move into maybe, you know, buybacks and dividends or what are your thoughts there? Uh, so first off, they, they have, um, even if they, you know, paid a special dividend of all the net cash on the balance sheet, they, they have plenty of free cash flow. You're right. They yeah. lost, I think the number is around 20 billion uh, cumulatively. Uh, I think their operating losses are about 5 billion a year. Um, yeah, I don't um, like Waymo is an interesting one. Sure. It could be, you know, in 10 or 20 years, it could be worth, who knows, $500 billion uh, more. Uh, I don't know. Depends. Uh, but I think the odds of that are not high. Um, you know, some people would argue that they are and they're in pole position. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's going to be a tough business. That's the technology has proved to be a lot harder than people thought. Yeah. Um I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't hate to see some of the bigger ones get, get spun out. Um, uh, you know, if people want to continue to own them, they can, if not, then don't, um, you know, I, I, I would like to have the option because a lot of those businesses I don't like. Yeah. I mean, when they're trying to do the, uh, they're spending billions of dollars on what is it? Those, um, the internet through what hot air balloons and stuff are curing, yeah. uh, death. That seems a little bit far-fetched, even more far-fetched than Waymo maybe. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, I, I don't hate the idea of, Hey, let's, let's spend some, uh, you know, sort of moonshot money on, on R and D and see where it goes. You know, if they just said, Hey, listen, we're, we're going to spend some money from time to time, if something gets kind of big, uh, we're just going to try to spin it out, you know, assuming there's a market for it, which there's currently strong market for, yeah. for all this stuff, uh, you know, and then, you know, we're going to keep our operating losses, uh, you know, as a result of that, say it's going to be like a billion dollars a year. I think that would be super palatable. I think investors would have the options of what they want to own. Uh, you know, I, I might, well, depending on the valuation, I might even keep Waymo, you know, I don't know. Um, but I, I think having choice would be nice. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what they do. I'm sure they'll just keep it all internally. And, you know, frankly, you know, if, if they spend a little too much and don't get a great return on it, it's 
probably not going to be enough to really impair the thesis, uh, but it is sort of frustrating on the margin. Yeah, and it's the big thought uh, that, I mean, does it, it seems like search isn't going away or YouTube. It seems like those are highly defensible businesses is kind of the, the main thesis you have is, all right, I mean, these should grow organically at at least a 10% rate, and it's going to be very, very tough to displace them with, unless there's a whole new paradigm of technology that comes in over the next decade or so. Right. Uh, yeah, I would say I am more comfortable uh, with the terminal value of, say, Google's core businesses than I am of something like Facebook. Um, right. I've always thought that media, in, you know, uh, including social media, is, is terribly competitive. Um, I, I, like back in the day when Buffett made all his money in media, it was, it was like you could, you know, it was 1975 or whatever, you know, you could read the newspaper or read a book or read a magazine. There's like three channels, uh, you know, like if you own one of those things, you are going to make a lot of money because there's just not a lot of competition. Now the internet um, competition for our times is really, really high. Uh, you know, I just, I think if you are a media or a social media company, you're competing for people's time. And obviously it's, it's much more complex and there's, there's overlays on does your advertising work and Facebook's does quite well, of course. Um, but, you know, we've cycled through, maybe in the last 15 years, we've cycled through a few different platforms that people have spent most of their time on. Um, and so uh, I, I had owned a couple of years ago, a small amount of Facebook stock and just wasn't super comfortable with it. Um, obviously it's uh, done pretty well since. So uh, take this with a grain of salt, but you know, I think there's just a lot of competition there. And, and so you could say, well, Hey, you know, Facebook, uh, if you sort of look at the numbers, looks just about as cheap as Google, you know, for me, to your point, um, I search is not without its risks. Uh, you know, Amazon in their advertising business shows you one, you know, you're, you're searching for something you want to buy in app. Um, and that is definitely a risk to, to Google. Um, I think there's a risk of whatever the next computing paradigm is. Um, you know, voice search isn't great. Uh, you'd think that Google could win once we move there, but who knows? Uh, so there are risks, but I think the risks on some of the other big tech companies are much higher. Um, so that's, you know, I was, I'm, you know, pretty comfortable. And, and I would, well, I guess, you know, with YouTube, I, for that same reason, I, I'm probably a little less excited about it than some others, just given the competition for people's time. And, and, um, right. but, but yeah, the core Google business, I think is, is quite strong and it's, it's possible to think of a world where we don't need it as much, but it's much harder than, than for most other businesses. Okay. So I think you already kind of answered this, but would you prefer them to be broken up? And then I guess if they were broken up, is there a specific business that you would like the most? That that's core search business, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I couldn't say, uh, excluding the other bets, I'm, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know, uh, all those interlocking pieces because they have their sort of ad tech business. Um, you know, I think YouTube probably is helped a little bit by being under the same umbrella. So yeah. even just from a kind of a human resources standpoint, you have people moving in and out. Um, so 
I, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I don't know for, for their big business, uh, you know, Android good for that to be in, under the same umbrella as well, of course. Um, so I wouldn't say, Hey, the big Google businesses, I, I want those broken up. Um, I'm sure if they spun YouTube, it would have some tremendously high valuation. So maybe, you know, maybe on a, some of the parts, the stock will go up a little bit, but I don't really care about that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would, with the break, if they were going to break up some of those smaller other bets, I, I would support that for sure. Uh, and on a, I guess on a financial standpoint, we've seen companies like Apple who generate all this cash flow should have consistent streams. Similar, I mean, Google should have even more consistent stream with the reliability of the search business. Uh, I haven't, I guess, looked at how much debt they have, but you see someone like Apple really use debt, I would say, wisely over the last three, you know, three or four years. What do you think about Google doing something like that as well? especially with interest rates as they are. I know that's a tough, that's almost a loaded question, but. <laughs> well, uh, I own a couple businesses that are very modi, uh, non-cyclical growth businesses that throw a lot of debt on them. Uh, and I, I happen to like that maybe more than most other people. Um, you know, hypothetically, if you said, hey, you know, you're going to put Malone and Maffei, you know, in charge of Google and we're going to run it with three or four times EBITDA leverage, uh, I wouldn't hate that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just, I don't I actually don't think some people appreciate how much uh, a strategy like that can can matter to the rate of return on the equity. It, it's, it's a lot. Um, that being said, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I have a sort of, they have a hundred and roughly $30 billion of net cash. Um, that's my, that's actually, you know, you talk about, well, you know, five, $5 billion a year and other bets losses. Well, you know, if my cost of capital is 12% and they have uh, $130 billion of cash, you know, that costs me 15 billion a year um, by them just keeping it and doing nothing. So, so that's actually my biggest frustration. Um, and I would support them just saying, hey, you know, as Apple said, hey, we're just going to get to net debt neutral. Uh, I would really support Google doing that. Um, they can't, you know, some people say, well, hey, what if they need some money for a rainy day or if they want to do an acquisition? Um, you know, uh, if they don't, <laughs> you know, if they need some cash for a rainy day, you know, they have so much cash for right now. Um, a lot of things would have to go tremendously wrong for that to ever be a yeah. problem. And if they ever wanted to acquire something, you know, they could finance it very, very easily, even if it was humongous, uh, completely through the debt markets or whatever, if you want to sell a little stock, do that. Uh, so, so there's no, there's no need for all that money to be in the bank. Um, yeah, I, I'd love to see them. I mean, uh, it would be better tax wise if they could just, you know, do a big accelerated buyback. Um, you know, they can pay it out as a special dividend. I think that would be great. Uh, you know, it's a big cost to just have it sit there and do nothing. So, but that being said, um, I don't know if many people have noticed, but over the last few years, uh, they've actually, uh, they've had a small buyback program for a while. The last three years, um, they've bought back more stock quarter over quarter um, for the last three years with actually the only exclusion was that, um, in Q1, when their stock was cheap, uh, they bought back even more. And so like Q2 is down a little bit, but you know, that was good. They bought a lot of it when it was cheap. Uh, so they're starting to spend real money on buybacks, which I think is exactly what they should be doing. 
Um, and I hope to see that continue. And hopefully, you know, in the next few years, uh, you know, they'll start to work that that cash pile down. Uh, but but we'll see. Okay. If you were CEO for a day, uh, would you change anything? I think it sounds like I, we have our answer, which is uh, a little more debt or a little more uh, cash to shareholders. But is there anything else you'd change? Uh, no, I'm I'm not I'm not the person to ask. Uh, we I had some I was having some sound issues before we got on here. I'm not the most <laughs> person. Uh, you know, listen, I, I think their core business they're doing great. Uh, you know. I have a feeling they might be hiding their true margin potential a yeah. little bit. Uh, but listen, uh, they have a very long-term asset. They have regulation risk. I, I think they're doing just great operationally, uh, financial side. You know, I think there's some easy improvements there. Uh, so. Okay. All right. Well, we'll transition to a, uh, another, my guess you would call it a steady business charter communications. Um, I don't, I think, do you, I don't know. I don't want to say if you, do you own it in your portfolio? I guess, is that uh yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, so before we talk about them individually, because they are a cable and broadband business, I think a lot of people kind of get the overview of what a cable business is. They understand it because most people have it in their house, but they really don't understand how the business models work. Can you explain that, you know, overview a bit uh, just for an investment perspective, how you look at that? Yeah. Yeah. Sure thing. So uh, I remember when I initially bought it, uh, the stock was off quite a lot uh, because video subscriber losses were accelerating. So um, the main revenue lines, excuse me, um, the main revenue lines uh, are broadband internet. That's the biggest one. Um, video. Uh, so, you know, what? when people say cable, you know, they think of the video uh, and then uh, sort of landlines, which some people apparently still have. Uh, and then they have, uh, you know, some small and medium business and enterprise customers that uh, sort of have similar things. Um, I think the big misconception over the last few years, and certainly about two and a half or three years ago when the stock sold off, was that video matters a tremendous amount. Uh, you know, I, I it's hard to, you can make some estimates because they give you um, what they spend on, co on content. So you can sort of break the revenue and the cost down and make some estimates. And it's looked to me for a couple of years, uh, like video is, uh, makes a little bit of EBITDA dollars and not much, if any, free cash flow. Um, maybe somebody that knows the space better could drill down more. But basically, most of the income and the value comes from internet. Um, and so I view the cable companies as primarily internet companies. Um, and so their model is, you know, internet penetration goes up a little bit in the States, you know, over time it kind of went up a lot this year with the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we build out, you know, we increase uh, the, the number of households in the country. And so, uh, you know, you get a little more houses and, that hopefully that's in your footprint or close to it and you can sort of build through. So uh, you get some volume growth that way. And then, and then the cable companies have been sort of massive market share gainers uh, compared to the old telecoms like AT&T and Verizon. Um, and so through those three things uh, you get some good organic subscriber growth on the internet side. 
uh, and that's really what's driven the financial returns. And it's it's very sticky. Um, it's not cyclical. Uh, yeah. Or you know, in two thousand nine, uh, you know, I think the earnings, well, even about whatever, uh, was up. The charter, I think, it was up high single digits or close to it. Uh, so you know, people generally don't cancel it because it's very important. Uh, what metrics do you look at the most? Uh, you mentioned EBITDA there. Um, do you look at that primarily or is uh, for cable specifically or do you pay more attention to the net gap numbers? Uh, kind of yeah. the balance of both. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, you just take EBITDA, throw a 20X on it and there's rally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I look at operating free cash flow, which is EBITDA minus CapEx. Um, that's that's actually how I look at most every company. Um, you know, I'll look at, uh, I'm actually, I know people like to to hate on adjusted EBITDA a lot. I, I actually like to look at it. I, I'll just, you know, if I don't like the adjustments, I'll just back them out. It's easy enough. Uh, and I'll find EBITDA dollars and then I will try to figure out, you know, what, what are the CapEx needs and the working capital needs. And, um, so, it's just a, it's just a slightly better way in my mind to find like the true operating income of the business. Uh, so for charter, um, uh, you know, two, so I think I've owned it for two and a half years and in that time EBITDA is up maybe, I think it's 15 and a half billion to maybe 18 and a half. Uh, so, you know, pretty good growth, but nothing insane, but CapEx dollars on a trailing 12 month basis are down from, I think almost 9 billion to a little over 7 billion. Uh, so, you know, EBITDA is up maybe $3 billion, but the kind of true operating income of the business is up 5 billion. So right. uh, better. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there a lot of depreciation expense with the broadband or the uh, cable fiber cables? Yeah, there is. Uh, and so there's, um, when you have big M and a transactions, with um, kind of asset heavy businesses, you, you have to be really careful about just, oh, let's just use the, the headline depreciation expense because you can have some accelerated depreciation. So, so they bought um, Advanced New House and uh, Time Warner Cable a few years ago um, to make what is now Charter. Uh, and so you have some, like, some humongous depreciation expenses. Um, and that's why uh, the gap earnings don't look so good, uh, but the free cash flow numbers do uh, is because the depreciation expense is a lot higher uh, than the CapEx numbers. And so a reasonable question is, well, hey, can they continue to only spend $7 billion a year, uh, you know, forever to, to keep this plan going? Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't go that far, but, but I would say you can kind of look at Comcast. Um, Charter is a couple of years behind Com where Comcast is uh, just because they had to integrate these three big companies together. And so Comcast's capital intensity, um, CapEx as a percentage of revenue continues to fall. Uh, and basically, well, one, uh, one tailwind there is um, they don't need to spend so much money on the video side because there's less video subscribers. And, um, so, you know, as internet subscribers keep going up on their sort of similar network, and they charge a little more, the CapEx as a percentage of revenue should continue to trend down over time, uh, would, would be my guess and um, the guess of everybody else that owns cable too. 
Right. Yeah. We've, uh, we talked a little bit about Google using leverage. I know that the cable businesses are notorious for using a lot of leverage and having debt on their balance sheet. Uh, how do you think about them using leverage? Do you like how they're financially set up? Um, I know that the management in this case is important for using um, you know, whoever's running that is very important. Uh, how do you think about that with Charter and does that go into your investment thesis? Yes, um, I think they have a responsible amount of leverage. Um, you know, Charter, uh, for people that kind of know the story, I, I didn't know the story back then, but sort of read on it when I was reading the Charter. Uh, so Charter actually went bankrupt in 2009. Uh, Paul Allen had owned it, and I think they were levered nine times on EBITDA. <laughs> uh, so they're, you know, I think I mentioned EBITDA was up like six or 7% that year, or it could have been 2010, I, I, but in that general time and they couldn't they couldn't roll some of their debt uh and the equity holders got you know, mostly wiped out uh so nine times is too much <laughs> yeah. uh should be that shouldn't be a uh that should be an obvious statement uh you know four times is pretty reasonable i think uh you know the debt markets are wide open they've got you know with, with debt you've got to worry about you know one can the business pay the interest expense and then two, are you going to run into any liquidity constraints? And they have their debt nicely termed out. So liquidity is um, kind of taken care of and they have plenty of free cash flow to pay the debt down. Um, you know, the one place you can get in trouble. So Comcast runs with a little over two times EBITDA leverage. Um, you have to adjust it because they own some other businesses that aren't kind of nearly as good. Uh, and shouldn't have much debt in my opinion. Um, but, but they do run that with less debt. And so, um, you know, one case in which case that, uh, that can be good is, you know, let's say the growth path of your operating free cash flow dollars is less than you think, uh, or flattens out at some point. Um, you know, people might on an unlevered basis, uh, the valuation could go from, oh, you know, this thing's, if it's growing 5% a year, you know, maybe it's worth 20 times operating free cash flow on an unlevered basis. But if it's not growing, maybe it's worth, you know, 10 or 12. Um, when you have a lot of debt on the company, you know, that equity piece can get crunched. So, um, you know, I guess it would be easier, like a piece of real estate, you know, if you, if you've got something levered up, uh, 60 cents on the dollar and the value of your piece of real estate goes from a dollar to 60 cents. Well, your equity is worth zero. Um, so Char Charter has a little more debt in their capital structure as a percentage of the total than something like Comcast. So, you know, I don't worry about the equity being a zero, but in a downside scenario on the valuation, you know, the equity could have further to fall for that reason. So that that's one risk. Uh, it's always a risk with lever companies. Um, I personally think it's high quality enough and, and the growth is should be there to support the strategy that they're pursuing. It seems like a pretty moaty business. Like it seems like it's got a pretty wide moat, uh, but do you, do you see any threats to the business? Any big risks at all? Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, just like any other business, uh, there are threats uh, everywhere. Um, so, the biggest thing, and I think, uh, I think it would tie into what I just said, which is, well, okay, charter's worth, uh, you know, if you just 
use the EBITDA multiple just so we don't have to talk about the CapEx and it'll just be a little simpler, uh, like, you know, whatever, 12 or 13 times EBITDA right now. Um, and it's the next couple of years is going to grow at a good rate. And then people are expecting maybe mid single digit growth or a little more um, on a bottom line basis after that. Uh, well, a good question is asked, well, what's it worth if it grows, say, zero to 2%, you know, uh, for whatever reason. And you can look at some other cable companies that exist and you'd say, well, maybe eight or nine times. Uh, so, you know, if you go, if you have four times EBITDA leverage and your valuation goes from 12 to eight, uh, your equity just lost half its value. Um, so the biggest risk to me, I don't think you need anything to come in and just completely decimate charters business and, and make the earnings go down. I think you just need somebody that's going to take enough broadband customers to really slow down their growth. Uh, now, what could that be? Um, you know, 5G is probably the most obvious example. Um, so charter, you have some smaller cable companies that have sort of overbuilders or, um, you know, Verizon or AT&T is building fiber in some spots um, and, and they face just a lot better competition in their fairly limited footprint. Uh, and so, you know, they could have some problems. Charters, it's a little better for charter because they're so big and they operate in a lot of different places that it's not just like, well, hey, if one metro area they don't do so well in, then their whole company's demolished. Um, so it would have to be sort of a nationwide competitor. Um, 5G, I think if you're going to think about it, there's a lot of sort of technical problems and challenges. Um, you know, if you're looking out five or 10 years, you might say, hey, let's just assume those get solved. So, so then what does it look like? And, and I think uh, um, if you are Verizon, you know, maybe say, hey, we get it solved. We have the customer relationship in mobile. Uh, so it should be pretty easy to cross sell 5G into home internet. Um, the main problem with that to my eyes is, you know, they've done some, some fiber over overbuilds where um, basically they build fiber. Uh, if, you know, say Charter already has the plant in some region, uh, Verizon will come in and build fiber next to it. That's they are overbuilding it. That's why they call it that. Um, and so, uh, they've done some of that building and effectively what has happened is as the cable companies have continued to take a lot of market share from their old sort of DSL pro uh, product that has low speeds and costs too much, um, they basically just converted some of their own customers from DSL to fiber, uh, which, you know, great, you know, they, they still have the customer but they have, it doesn't appear that they've actually gained a lot of share besides that. Uh, so you can look at their results and it'll be like, oh, they lost, you know, whatever, 200,000 customers on their sort of old line business and they gained 150,000 in their fiber business. And like, isn't that great? And it's like, well, if, if you own cable, it's, they, they built the fiber, you know, which is a, which is a good, fast asset. Uh, they have the customer relationship on mobile and they're still losing to the cable companies. Um, and so to me, once 5G's here, I think it might look a lot like that. Um, I think it'll be, well, hey, listen, they, they have the customer relationship, they've got hypothetically this fast asset, um, but I don't think they're gonna take much share. 
Um, the counterpoint to that, like I said, given more charge valuation is um, if they could just impact the growth, uh, you know, charter could be at, at some risk or the stock could be at least. Um, so, I mean, we'll see. Uh, I think it'll be a little while before we get some real competition. And I think the cable companies are in a really good spot to compete. Okay. Uh, we got a last question here on charter and then we'll wrap things up. What are your thoughts on management? I know they, um, I'm not really sure where they came from. I know they may have come out from the Liberty John Malone team. Uh, what are your thoughts on them? Uh, I think the way they run that asset is terrific. Uh, I don't think they actually get nearly enough credit for their strategy. Um, so Comcast to hit their, you know, to grow their business, they mostly rely on price. Uh, so it's fairly expensive. You know, they push price up, you know, I live in Comcast footprint, you know, I got rid of my cable a while back. I pay like 80 bucks a month, uh, for my internet. It's generally pretty expensive and they push price to grow charters cheaper, uh, generally, and they're not pushing price so much in an effort to, um, they talk about this a lot that, you know, they have a fixed network and the financial results are going to be best if they have the most people they can over that fixed network. So the best way to do that is to have really good service. So they've insourced their customer service, which costs more, but, um, like per call, but leads to better results for customers, have your customers that turn less, um, and the prices are low, lower, um, which means that they should be able to penetrate their asset base better. So, you know, those risks to 5G or from regulation, uh, you know, I think you should be a little more worried about them if uh, you're selling more expensive product than if your product's cheaper. So, so I like that strategy a lot. Um, it's led to, you know, really great top tier subscriber growth. Uh, I hope they continue to do it without put, pushing price too much. Um, and, you know, my guess is at some point down the line, hopefully it's way down the line, um, they'll be just about as penetrated as they can be. You know, they'll push the price level uh, lever a little bit more. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I just, I, I really support what they're doing. Um, operationally, they've been superb. Um, so I, I, I think you can't say enough good things about how they're operating that asset. I feel like the customer service thing is absolutely huge. Yeah. I mean, Xfinity, we have, or Xfinity or Comcast or whatever. It's, I mean, it's awful. <laughs> the customer service there, it, it is terrible. But, yeah. All right. yeah. Well, actually, one thing, now that you guys say that, so uh, my mother-in-law, she lives in Charter's Footprint. Uh, and actually an interesting, um, so like two years ago, she had, you know, like, 25 megabit AT&T internet service yeah. she had the full direct TV and then she had her phone through AT&T. Um, and I said, you know, so the cable, I didn't talk a lot about it, but the cable companies, they also have a, um, a mobile phone service now using Verizon's network and it's, it's cheap. It's like 45 bucks a month unlimited. So I changed all her stuff over. Uh, and so she got, she went to like 200 megabits internet. Uh, you know, that saved her like 20 bucks a month. Uh, we put her on uh, one of the over-the-top AT&T, uh, it was yeah. DirecTV Now or something, you know, that saves 70 bucks a month. And then on the mobile phones, she had uh, one of the person in the household, and I think they saved $100 a month. Um, and, you know, everything was better, and it was a lot cheaper. Uh, and then, 
like maybe so so it was great but what was funny is like she doesn't know people don't know like oh i have at t internet and what's charter like like normal people don't know um i think one of their actual big advantages is you know younger people or some people like you've had cable before like oh i trust at least comcast is annoying but like my internet's gonna work so i'm just gonna yeah. buy it um so i think that like brand name and recognition is really important and the trust and she was like oh i just i don't want to change because you know the at&t internet always works and i was like listen this is gonna always work too but it's gonna actually be fast um so so they have some advantages there but on the customer service front we were doing a pretty big remodel in our house this summer and um i basically i pulled the the, the coax the fiber out of the wall on accident uh and I was like, I didn't quite realize I did it. I was trying to take the, the thing off to paint behind it and the, the cable came out. And so I was like, oh, you know, we have no internet. I was like, oh. so I, I called, I called them. I was like, well, they've, they've insourced their, you know, customer service, but I'm sure it's going to be this big disaster. Uh, and so sure enough, I get on the phone in like three minutes with this super nice lady. And she's like, oh, okay, uh, why are you free to have somebody come out? I'm like, whatever, you know, ASAP. And she's like, okay, how about an hour? Uh, and so this guy came out an hour later and he crawled up into the attic and fixed it and then fixed some places where the cable was kind of deteriorated. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I was like, you know, do I, can I double my position through you or yeah. should I contact TD Ameritrade? Uh, so anyways, I'm sure, you know, that's, it was just chance. And like, sometimes it doesn't work out like that, but I was pretty impressed. I mean, that's a lot better than my Comcast experiences. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. it makes the lifetime value of a customer way higher. Like okay. I will stick around if I know that no matter what, you're going to show up in an hour if I need you. I mean, it's a big Netflix argument too. They make it so easy compared to someone like Xfinity, but I guess it's a whole new can of worms. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll get to the wrap up questions. Uh, I'll go first. What is one financial saying that you disagree with? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say a saying, um, but I think, um, I think the idea that you can just sort of blindly learn from very good investors is flawed. Uh, and so I was thinking like, okay, how, how have I changed my investment ideas over the past few years? Um, and so I think I told you, you know, I got started. And so I read all the Buffett letters and I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I need to be mega concentrated and, um, you know, just sit around and tell her something obvious and then put, you know, 30% of my money in it. Um, and, and I just, one, I think there's a, a lot of survivorship bias everywhere. Um, not with Buffett. I think if you, I think if you gave him, if you ran a simulation a hundred times, I think it's going to turn out very well pretty much every time. Um, but like, if you're looking at a bunch of good investors, like I think you just need to be really aware of survivorship bias and really worried about it. Um, but on top of that, um, you know, your investor base might be way different. So, you know, what somebody like, you know, I talked about paying taxes, like most, most hedge fund people, they, they don't, like they, they report pre-tax returns. So um, it's a very big difference what I'm trying to do and what they're trying to do. And so, you know, maybe you shouldn't try to learn too much from that. Um, but, but even with Buffett, I mean, 
you know, listen, I, I had to realize a few years ago, wait a second, like I'm, I'm not nearly as smart as him. Uh, yeah, none of us are. <laughs> yeah, nobody is. I, I mean, you know, I, I shouldn't, I'm not smart enough to say, hey, uh, this is an obviously great company and, and the price is cheap and I'm going to put 40% of my money in it. I, I'm just, that's not something I should ever do. Uh, and so I had to kind of unlearn that uh, because that's kind of how I used to operate. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But I think the risk I was taking was, was much too high. Uh, so, so I think, I think you can read, you know, I think it's better to, to read about people that blew themselves up and just avoid that. Um, I, you know, I, for the same reason, like if, if you're an operational person, I don't think you should just read Steve Jobs's biography and you're like, Oh, I'm gonna do what that guy did. Like, no, I, I think you, I think it's a lot more complicated. I think there's a lot of survivorship bias. Uh, and I think you just have to be really careful. So I think, you need to think for yourself, um, you know, see what people are doing, read everything you can about, you know, funds and investors that kind of blew up or had to redeem all their investors money and avoid those things. You can learn from that. And then, you know, look at Buffett, really use a critical eye on, okay, how this guy made, you know, what were the big ideas where he made his money? Um, a big one being, you know, his partnership days, like cigar butts, but at Berkshire Hathaway, if you look at all the excess return, uh, it came from like, he was buying compounders. Like he wasn't buying thotty stocks, like, you know, Washington post in the day, uh, Geico, Coca-Cola, uh, Coca-Cola, capital cities. Yeah. Uh, those were the high growth names of the day. He was just smart enough, uh, and patient enough and maybe lucky enough, um, to buy them really cheap, uh, which is very difficult. Um, but so, so yeah, I would, I would just say, try not to learn the wrong lessons. Think for yourself, you know, watch out for survivorship bias. Yeah. All right. And last question, what's one piece of advice you'd have for anyone considering a career in investing? Um, I think, you know, I think the biggest thing, once you get started, if you invest money for other people, you, you just, you, you have to always do the right thing for them. I think that's the biggest thing. I've been in business for eight years. I've tried to do that. I think I've done well at it. Um, there are, there are plenty, there are plenty of opportunities to, I mean, and I'm not talking about like, like really horrible stuff, but like, but just like, here's an example. You know, I, 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 my clients pay taxes, you know, I charge just on the balance they have with me. So if they pay the taxes outside, I could just say, Hey, well, listen, you know, the stock went from hundred to 200 and I'm going to sell it and put it in something else. And so, you know, I'm going to charge on the 200, they're going to pay the tax outside the account. And so like their gross return might be a little bit better. The after tax return might be a little bit worse, but like my fees will be slightly higher. Like, you know, there's stuff like that. Uh, and I, I just, uh, you know, being in business for eight years and just doing everything I can to make sure I'm treating my clients perfectly um, has been a big deal. And I think they notice. Uh, and, you know, all my business, it would start off as a friends and family shop. Um, I've had maybe some referrals here and there, but uh, you just, you're entrusted with many times people's life savings and it's a big responsibility. Um, and you shouldn't take it lightly and you just, you just have to treat everybody right. 
Uh, that's, that's the biggest thing. And it'll, you know, it isn't only the right thing to do. It's, it's going to lead to success as well. Okay. I think that's going to do it. That's all our questions. You have, you don't have any more? Nope. I'm all good. Okay. Thank you for joining us, Kyler. Had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Appreciate having me on. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Kyler for coming on the show. Next up, we have hot water. I've got what? Three. Three. I have three too. So. Okay. My Go first ahead. one is Herbert Dice. I think, I think I'm saying that right. I don't know. Who, who is that? Uh, he's the CEO of Volkswagen. He joined Twitter uh, this week and he walked right into a firestorm. I don't think, I wouldn't be surprised if he left the platform within a month um, because the, obviously there were a lot of, uh, I can't say the word in front of you. No, no, you can say it. I just, I just can't respond. There were a lot of Tesla shareholders, like you'll, you know, in his mentions, like you'll never be able to compete that kind of stuff, which was whatever, like, I guess that was expected, but the amount of people that were mansplaining the auto industry to him and like how he should change the business. Yeah. I'm like, he doesn't know anything. I'd get so fed up. Have been on Twitter if I were like that. I mean, yeah. it's got to be tough. But uh, no I don't comment. Think yeah, no comment for me. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, my second one though is the New York Post had an article this week that was titled uh, "Humans Could Move to Floating Asteroid Belt Colony Within 15 Years." Well, seems a little optimistic. Well, they are the premier science journal. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just, it feels like we're getting all our space takes from Pixar now. Wasn't that in the movie Wally? Wally, yeah. And there's an Amazon show about that, which you know maybe Bezos is just planting the seed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's ridiculous. It's not happening in 15 years. But you know the concept seems interesting because of that. You know, taking gravity to its own advantage, where you're whatever using the centripetal acceleration and all that stuff. Uh, but mm-hmm. right, you you understand that. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the. Uh, it's not happening in 15 years. This reminds me of the SpaceX in 2012. We're going to Mars in 2018, and now they're pushing to like 2030 or farther. Uh, I mean, 15 years for an asteroid belt colony. We can't. We can barely get stuff into the atmosphere. I mean, I don't. Know. It's yeah. ridiculous. Uh, Dalio is in hot water as well. He tweeted <laughs> this week that uh, he believes we are on the brink of a terrible civil war. Dude, he's lost it. Which, all right, what is that? I mean, that doesn't help. If anything, talking about how we're on a, the brink of a civil war just propels a civil war. Dude, yeah, and it's because of, I don't want and to also, say And also, where would you even fight a civil war? Like, I feel like well, that all happened in fields back in the day, and I don't <laughs> know what farms we well, meet at. Uh, I mean, you are right. They did fight in fields back in the day. Uh, but, yeah, this one would be a little different because it's not geographically based as much. Uh, um, I mean, I guess there are people. Twitter civil war. Yeah, Dalio, I don't know. Two things is, one, it's because a lot of people are upset about the, you know, wealth inequality. And it's like, Dalio, I mean, get a mirror, buddy. Uh, but, yeah, he's downright he's ridiculous. He's radically transparent. He is being radical. Yes, he is. Um, he's emphasis also on in, radical. He's, yeah, emphasis on insane, dude. This guy, I mean. I, he I just hate- feels robotic a little bit. I don't um, know, man. What is wrong? Like, it's, you could uh, uh, obviously there's tensions between a lot of fringe parties in the United States, but this guy, like, I don't know. Most people, like, what did some? I think Colin Roche, who's a good follow on Twitter, said, uh, you know, most people don't care. Like, 95 percent of yeah. people aren't really. No, I, I mean, I I wonder if that's what it was like during the actual Civil War. If most people just didn't care. No, not true. 
I mean, they yeah, literally seceded. Most, so Colin no. Roche was like, uh, what did he say? Most people aren't even getting out of bed. No, and they're work. yeah. Most people are just in pajamas. Uh, yeah. What makes you think we're gonna take up arms? That was, I mean, that Dalio tweet. There's some ridiculous VTC tweets and stuff like that. You know, it's up there. All uh, right. Dal- um, yeah, Dalio. I don't know. We even know what to think. He's okay. Those are my three. What do you have? Okay. Well, I had the New York Post tweet, which is an all timer. I was, I thought it was maybe Elon hacking the <laughs> hacking the site, uh, but Alphabet has canceled Loon, its project meant to beam internet connections from hot air balloons. Um, is this another notch in the cable broadband moat? And it's actually perfect for the interview we had this week with Kyler because we talked about mm. Charter, you know, how it's hard to disrupt that type of business. And yeah. Google kind of closing up some of its other bets and trying to, you know, be more financially sound, even though they are already financially sound. I do feel like, you know that scene in Silicon Valley where he's where Gavin Belson walks down, he's like, I need a moonshot. I feel like that <laughs> happens at Google on a daily basis, and then they're just like, "This isn't going to work." Yeah, I mean, they, they were going to supply cable to all of America. Well, not cable, internet. Or, and now the hot air balloons. It, I mean, hopefully they're getting a little more practical. Um, yeah, the hot air balloon thing seems insane. Once you know, Waymo worked right, uh, but when, if they close down hot air balloons and they close down that curing life or sorry, curing death thing, that project, um, maybe then maybe we know they're on the right track. Yeah. I guess if I were, you know, Sergey or Larry, well, they're they had all they're off. anything to do. Yeah, they're not even I out. I thought he was still like, I thought they were kind of intermixed nah, they're, with they're out. They're out now. Well, I think. I bet you they're just like, here's your play money every year. We'll allocate this yeah, budget I, to Sergey and Larry. I think, yeah, I forget who who is it, but one of them, yeah, is still doing the other bets stuff. Uh, but most of them, they're out of the day-to-day and like the actual um, – uh, which we call the executive team and stuff like that. Okay. Um, yeah. What else do you have? Okay. Last one. Single family home inventory is in hot water because it's down to only four hundred thousand. It's fallen off a cliff this year, as the demand for the suburbs, I guess, are mm. you know skyrocketing, and it's down from over a million in twenty fifteen. There's a little cycle it goes through usually, and it's been declining ever so steadily, but it's just totally falling off a cliff now. Um, you know, a lot of people we talked to, uh, I think, you know, one of them was Ian, uh, who we talk, you know, every Thursday with, and others have been discussing investing in home builders. Um, yeah. and now I'm not really a big, you know, pl- like, uh, this, you know, home trend builders. Play. It, yeah. I'm not, a, I, I really despise the trend plays because I think you can get into a lot of trouble doing that, but has the home builders thesis that people have had, it seems like it's playing out now because they're going to have to spend a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. It could it does make sense. Uh, he even had that take way back. Uh, oh, he was summer. early. He was early, yeah. Yeah, it was like even uh, Molly Fool days, we were, yeah, he's like, I think everyone's going to move out into the suburbs and uh, home builders are going to get a boost. Yeah, demand, it seems like the supply is dwindling and there's going to be a lot of building this spring and summer. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I'd see that. Uh, that's a fair thesis, but then again, I do not like betting on like the trends, yeah. Sort of concepts or trends, or I like companies centric approaches, but uh, that's all you got, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Buy, sell, hold a theme. Not very exciting. It's earnings today, so it'll be on Tuesday. Oh. Earnings from this Tuesday. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, but whatever. Um, so I have Starbucks, Alaska Airlines, and Microsoft. Oh, who? I think, to be honest, I think I'm going to sell. And these are, are these all? Seattle companies, wow, home bias today. <laughs> home uh, bias, Ryan. Jeez. Uh, 
Wow, this is a tough one. Because to be honest, I like Alaska a lot, even though it's an airline. Uh, but I don't know. I'd have to see Microsoft's valuation. I might just I might sell Starbucks because I don't know. I think they're trading at a they got a lot of debt. They've used a lot of debt to buy back shares, and they've kind of eked out that earnings per share growth with minimal revenue growth. And they do play a good dividend, but they have been, and maybe I need to check, trading at like close to 40 times earnings. And it's tough to see where they're going to grow. I mean, they, I guess a lot of people didn't think they could grow like from 2010 to now, but I don't know. They're trading at, well, I guess they're only trading at 25 times EBITDA. But that's EBITDA. Also, I don't think... Um I think the commute, the no commute thing, is gonna eat away at them. I yeah, we'll see, yeah we'll see. Yeah, they're trading at thirty-seven times forward earnings. So I don't know. I might. I, Starbucks is a great brand. I don't know. Might sell them. I might hold a. I might buy Alaska, depending. I don't know. What and just hold Microsoft? Yeah, Microsoft again. You know, I mean, they're trading at a very premium valuation. I mean, it's yeah, the I think ultimate it's like thirty-seven times. Earnings or free cash flow, something like that. Yeah, I mean it's it's a ridiculously bulletproof business, but yeah, it's yeah, I mean it's the number one jockey for a reason. So that seems fair. It seems unlikely. I'm either buying or selling Alaska. It seems unlikely that they will stay where they're at because it, it's such a risky business to be in right now. Yeah, and the thing about Alaska is that they're one of the only airlines that doesn't have a giant debt load. So if there's a lot of bankruptcies in the future or anything like that. Um, which with uh, basically just bailing out the airlines, I don't know, they could be able to capture some of that you know, new demand uh, when travel comes back. So that's kind of the only reason you have that thesis there, but that comes back into the trend play uh, that we don't really like. And then the business model itself, um, the operating leverage can work in the opposite direction pretty poorly. So I don't know. It's a tough one. Good one, though. Okay. Um, anecdotal evidence. Mine's not all that anecdotal, but it's just kind of a... <laughs> Okay. Controversial thing. Go ahead. Um, so I'm sure you saw the stuff this week about Pelosi buying Tesla calls. Um, yeah, which could have been her. It was her. I mean, it has, could have been her family. It didn't have to be. It didn't have to be her. Could have been her husband or something. But don't you think people? Don't you think people that have the ability to write law or uh, yeah. Right orders that could impact stocks should not be allowed to trade derivatives. I feel like that is one of the most obvious things. Yeah, uh, let's like, put them all in sixty. Let's pay them all. more, and then tell them they can't trade derivatives because they can do anything in their best interest. Yeah, I mean they should just have like a uh, kind of a fund, you know, or like a trust or whatever, and everyone just gets it's pulled just, into a sixty forty or whatever they decide. You know, a highly diversified yeah. portfolio, um, and force them to do that. And it's like, look, you get the privilege of being a senator. Uh, but we saw with the what was it? What's the the person from Georgia? Who's married? Who was married to the, like the New York? I believe it was the New York Stock Exchange guy uh, who yeah. was committed total securities fraud this winter, and nothing happened. I mean, she lost the election, which I guess is nice to not have a criminal yeah. uh, in the you know office. But that, I mean, it seems like no one cares. Fintwit cares, but I know it's, it, it. I mean, it's it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah, that is so. God, it feels like uh, that's an obvious problem. That should yeah. have been solved a while ago. I hate crony. I like capitalism, but I hate crony capitalism. Yeah. All right. What's well, yours for the week? Okay. Well, one to go first with. I got two. Uh, I'll go with this one. So, I'm moving to a new apartment. So I bought some mattresses and like a you know 
Whatever purple? Uh, no, I used Amazon, just one of those standard ones they have on there. It's similar to like a Casper or Purple. Okay. Um, and I just thought that, you know, I used Amazon, got the cheap stuff. I, I understand Wayfair has done well. I just don't get it. Like, I had no thought of ever going to Wayfair. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I actually I mean, had a really terrible Wayfair, Wayfair experience once, so I might agree with you. I mean, what's the... I mean, what kind of economies of scale are you going to get that's going to have you beat someone like Amazon or just go into a store? Because it's tough. I get this argument has been pretty beaten down for the last five years of people talking about how Wayfair isn't going to survive and now they're, they've done well. Uh, but I just, I don't know. Maybe someone correct me, but. I bought something once on Wayfair and I don't think they did anything that Amazon couldn't. Yeah, I've um, never. I never say up my package. Yeah, <laughs> never say never, but I just don't see myself going on that website. Yeah, well, shareholders are they're doing well. Angry. They they well they can well, be angry not. and rich because I think the stocks don't for not they're well right yeah. they're up like a thousand. Jmo Jason Moser. He's yeah, maybe we need to talk. There. Yeah, maybe right. we need, yeah maybe we need to talk to him about that um, because I still don't get it. Uh, which is fine. I hope I hope the shareholders do well. But my other one is a show. Uh, that I think a lot of investors would like. I finished it. It's called Halt and Catch Fire. It's on Netflix. It's like an AMC one. I think it started and it ended in like 2017, but it's basically about these, this group of people uh, that start out like trying to build computers to beat IBM. And they got like a Steve Jobs guy that's really annoying. And then like the engineer who's kind of like Wozniak, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they just kind of go through the 80s and 90s of all the different technologies and trying to compete and stuff like that. Uh, so I think any business or investing like person would love it. Did um, you watch the tiger thing? Yeah, not good, not good. Really? No, no. He wasn't in it. Is people were like, "There's going to be like the last dance for Tiger," but he wasn't in it. I don't. And they they talked about a lot of things in like his personal life, you know, with the the fa- the affairs and stuff for like a half hour. And I felt like I was watching E. <laughs> uh, and I was like, I, I care about the golf. I don't really. Okay. So that, no, not a recommend, but Halt and Catch Fire, definite recommend. It's like a serious Silicon Valley. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it, right? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Code CCM. Uh, check out for 7invest, uh, another plug for us. And then uh, thanks again to Kyler for coming on the show. Am I missing any disclosures? No. Oh, oh next yeah. week will be our 100th episode Ooh. for our Tuesday show. So there we go. Wow, that's uh, it's a big day. Um, Huge day. But yeah, we're not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or a recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.